Now, as we move into chapter 9 here, God knew Israel, and their past was not good. Listen to this as we move into this chapter. Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day. He's not talking now about the 24-hour day, but they've now come to that time when they're going to enter the land. You're to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest and of whom thou hast heard say, who can stand before the children of Anak? God's report of the land is worse than the spies that came back. You see, God knew the land, and God knew who was in there. God told them to go in. They wouldn't go in. Why? They didn't believe God. God says, sure, they're greater than you are, but I'm with you. Martin Luther put it like this. He says, one with God is a majority. (laughs) My friend, if you are with God... You're with the majority. Now, I belong to a minority group down here today, but I'm going to let you in on something. The world doesn't know it, but I'm with the majority today. You see, one with God is the majority. I want to be of Him, friends. Now, will you notice as he moves on here, he says, Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is He which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire. He'll destroy them. You want to blame God for that, my friend? He takes the responsibility. God says, I'm the one put them out. God's the landlord. He's the creator. God has a right to do this. And after all, the little creatures today, when I hear a liberal complain about this, I just feel like saying, you little pipsqueak, you keep quiet. You and I are just little creatures down here. He's the creator, and if he says he's going to do it this way, He's going to do it that way, and you and I can't stop him, friends. He shall bring them down before thy face, so shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. Verse 4, Speak not thou in thine heart, after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doth drive them out, from before thee. In other words, God says that he drove them out because they were wicked nations, not because the people he were putting in there were righteous. They were not, as this chapter makes it abundantly clear. And he goes on, verse 5, "...not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart, dost thou go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of these nations..." The Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, and that he may perform the word which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know the reason that God will save you and me? It's not because we're good, we're sinners. But he saves us because Christ died for us, and God says, I agreed to save them, and it's for Christ's sake. We're saved, friends, not for our sake. Oh, if you are listening today and you think somehow or another that God's looking for something in you that will merit salvation, you forget it because you're going to be disappointed. And God already knows you and he says he can't find anything there. No righteousness at all. It's for Christ's sake that God saves you and God finds everything in him. How wonderful it is. 
You see, you have here the seed for the gospel of the grace of God in this remarkable section of Scripture. Now, he again repeats it, verse 6, "...understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness." Listen, "...for thou art a stiff-necked people." God didn't come down and deliver them because they were a wonderful people. He said, well, I knew all the time you were stiff-necked people. I heard you cry. And my friend, if you're a sinner, know it. And you left a cry to him for salvation, he'll hear you. You know why? Not because of who you are, but for Christ's sake. And he'll turn to Christ in faith. He'll save you. Now, if you have your Bible turned to the ninth chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 7, we'll put in there, and as we said last time, this is God's going over the past of the nation Israel. God knew Israel, and the past was not good. God didn't save them because they were good. He didn't call them because they were an outstanding nation. They were not. And he hasn't saved us because we're outstanding or because that we're superior or we're even good. We're bad. The only kind of people God's saving is bad people, not good people at all. And I never shall forget several years ago of walking back of some very wonderful members of the church I was serving, and they walked through a park that we went through Library Park, and there was a bum there, and he begged from them, and they didn't give him anything, which they should not have. We always cautioned them to send these folk down to the mission. And this fellow didn't want that. He wanted money, of course, for wine. And when I came along, he didn't know who I was. And he said to me, he says, you know, the trouble of those folks that just went down there to that church. He says, they think they're better than anybody else. And I says, you know, that's quite interesting what you said, that they think they're better than anyone else. I said, I happen to know them. And I said, I remember the day that they came to Christ. And I said, you know why they came? He looked at me in amazement. I said, they came because they didn't think they were better than anybody else. I said, frankly, they thought they were worse than anybody else. In fact, they thought they were sinners, and they needed a Savior, and that's the reason they came to Christ. Well, I tell you, I left that fellow with his lower jaw down about six inches lower than it was when I got there, because the average idea is that a church is made up of people who think they're better than other folk. If that's true, then that's not a church certainly in the New Testament sense. God saves because we're bad, because he knows our lost condition. Now, let me read verse 7 with that in mind. He says again, sending them back over their past history, "...remember and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness." from the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until ye came unto this place, ye have been rebellious against the Lord. Now, that which he was referring to specifically, of course, was the 
time they made the golden calf. And I'll go back to that. We'll backtrack just a little to the 32nd chapter of Exodus, and we'll look at verse 4 here. Listen to this. He received them at their hand. That is, the women took off their golden earrings, which were in their ears. And not only the women, by the way, the men were wearing them. And those golden earrings, and it was generally in just one ear, was a sign of idolatry, by the way. You see, these people had just lapsed into idolatry in a hurry. And these golden earrings were taken and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And God reminded them of that again over in Psalm 106, verse 19. He says, They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molten image. Thus they changed their glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God, their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt. So you see, God says to them here, remember. But they didn't remember. They forgot, by the way. Now we read in verse 8, Also in Horeb ye provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you. And again they lapsed into idolatry. These people were quick to lapse into idolatry. God knew them, but in spite of all that, he delivered them. Now, notice verse 12. I drop down to that. And the Lord said unto me, that is Moses, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So that when they made that golden calf, while Moses was up getting the commandments at that very time, and two of those commandments were against that golden calf. In fact, against idolatry, against other gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of anything. And they're making one down there of a calf. And they're making the golden calf. And God tells Moses to get down. And notice God says to him, "'They're your people, Moses.'" And you brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, Moses will answer that in just a moment. Now, will you notice verse 13, what God says? He says, Furthermore, the Lord spoke unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. The Lord has repeated this several times. The Lord said, I knew all the time you were a stiff-necked people, and he knows you and me. And now will you notice verse 14? He says, Let me alone, that I may destroy them, blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of thee a nation mightier and greater than they. That was a great temptation to Moses, but he resisted it. And Moses made it very clear to the Lord. He said, If you're not going to bring them into the land, don't bring me them. Don't bring my line, because I'm identified with them. Verse 16, he says, And I looked, and behold, ye had sinned against the Lord. That is, Moses, when he came down from the mount. He says, And I looked, and behold, ye had sinned against the Lord your God, and had made you a golden calf. Ye had turned aside quickly out of the way which the Lord had commanded you. 
In other words, the very moment God was giving them the commandments, they were at that very moment turning from him, and at the same time they were saying that they would obey him. I suppose that people can be phony in religion more than anything else. It seems to be something that is characteristic of the human nature. And I think sometimes people are sincere, and yet they are being as phony as they possibly can. We need to go with the psalmist, search me and know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Every child of God needs to pray that. And Paul said to us, examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith or not. I preach the security of the believer, friends. I believe that a believer is secure. But I also preach the insecurity of the make-believers. And there are a lot of make-believers. We need to search our hearts, every one of us. Now, will you notice here, he goes on to say, verse 17, "...and I took the two tables and cast them out of my two hands." and break them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and forty nights. I did neither eat bread nor drink water because of all your sins which ye sinned in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. May I say two things here? Moses knew God. The psalmist says, He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. Now, all the children of Israel saw the mountain smoke. They saw the Ten Commandments given. They saw the judgment of God. They saw his glory. But they didn't know him. He made known his ways to Moses. Moses knew him. Now, there are two things that are revealed here about God that are true today. And these are paradoxical statements, not contradictory. May I say to you, you and I haven't even the faintest conception of how God hates sin and how he intends to punish it. When Moses saw what these people did, he went down on his face before God, and for 40 days he fasted and cried out to God to deliver those people. Why? Moses knew the ways of God. He knew God hated sin. The average Christian doesn't seem to realize that God hates sin in his life. And my friend, God's not going to pass it by. God's going to deal with it in your life and in my life. I know he does that. I've been a pastor too long, friends. For 40 years, I've observed church people. I've been with them. I know them today. And I want to say to you, I've watched this man in a church, and he's played fast and loose with God. He's cut the corners, and he's put up a front. And then I've seen the days go by, and they melt into years. And then I begin to see the hand of God moving in that man's life. And sometimes the judgment is severe. I had a man come to me, and he actually dropped down on his knees, and he cried out. He said, Oh, Pastor, I just cannot stand what God's putting me through today. And I can remember as a young upstart, a young married man. Now he's lost his children. Why? He thought he could play fast and loose with God. 
Now, Moses is down on his face before God, crying out. Now, Moses knew the ways of God, and he knew God punished sin. And also, something else is revealed here, too, the mercy of God. Oh, my friend, God will punish sin, but you do not know how wonderful he is, how gracious he is. I don't know. I'm just telling you this. You and I today haven't any conception how gracious God is and how wonderful he is. And so, he extended mercy to these people. He's extended mercy to you, I'm sure. I know he has to me. Will you listen? Verse 19, he says, For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure wherewith the Lord was wroth against you to destroy you. But the Lord hearkened unto me at that time also. You know, he answered the prayer of Moses, and Moses knew that. And you remember, Paul made it very clear, though, it wasn't because he was Moses. God made it very clear that he heard Moses' prayer, but it wasn't because old Moses was old Moses. It was because God is merciful. And he made that very clear. This is what Paul says in Romans 9, verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And what he's saying to Moses is this, Moses, I'm going to hear your prayer. I'm going to answer it. Not because you're Moses, not because you're the deliverer, not because you're the leader of my people, but because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God is sovereign, and God will extend mercy. How wonderful he is. You and I do not know to the fullest extent these two things about God. Now let me move along. Verse 20, And the Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. And I prayed for Aaron also the same time. And I took your sin, the calf which she had made, and burned it with fire, stamped it, and ground it very small, even until it was as small as dust. And I cast the dust thereof into the brook that descended out of the mount. Now, he goes on to tell about that experience. And now Moses sums it up, and listen to this. It's almost humorous. It would be if it wasn't so tragic. It's Moses speaking, verse 24. He says, "...ye have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew ye." <laughs> there never was a day that these people were really found faithful to God. What a picture this is of them. And we point our finger in criticism, but what about the church today? I think that you could say it of many of the churches that are even conservative churches, there's not a day that they're faithful to God, and yet they boast that they're sound in the faith. They're sound, all right. They're sound asleep. Verse 25, Thus I fell down before the Lord forty days, forty nights, as I fell down at the first, because the Lord had said he'd destroy you. And Moses knew God would do it too, by the way. And if you think, my friend, that God's not a God that judges sin, you're just not acquainted with him. God judges sin. 
I prayed therefore unto the Lord, and I said, O Lord God, destroy not thy people and thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed through thy greatness, which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Will you notice this? And again in the 29th verse, he says, Yet they are thy people and thine inheritance, which thou broughtest out by thy mighty power and thy stretched out arm. You see, Moses knew how to pray. I wish we knew how to pray like that. God says to him, did you notice back there in verse 12? He said to Moses, Thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. Moses went to the Lord and said, Lord, I think you made a mistake. Imagine telling God he's made a mistake. He says, I think you made a mistake. They're not my people. I wouldn't have them. I didn't bring them out of Egypt. You brought them out of Egypt, and they're your people. And you know that move the arm of God? God says, if they're my people, and if I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Moses reminded him, he says, what will the enemy say? He'll say, you were able to bring them out, but you weren't able to bring them in. And God says, I'll bring them in. I'll bring them in. <laughs> I tell you, that kind of praying moves the arm of God. How wonderful this section is. Now we come here to chapter 10. And chapter 10, the subject is here, God sent Israel to Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt. And this demonstrates what Moses has said. They're thy people, and they're thine inheritance, and you are the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, let me begin reading here. At that time the Lord said unto me, Hew thee two tables of stone, like unto the first. In other words, God said, all right, we'll start all over again. We'll start now, and we'll make the Ten Commandments, and we're not going to have any golden calf at all. Now, we go down in this section. He brought the tables down, and the tables were put in the ark, and the children of Israel then continued their journey. And then we're told at verse 8, at that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi, to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister unto him, and to bless in his name unto this day. Wherefore, Levi hath no part nor inheritance with his brethren. The Lord is his inheritance, according as the Lord thy God promised him. Now, there's a great spiritual lesson you can see here for us. Levi was the priestly tribe. Today, the church is a kingdom of priests. That is, it is a priesthood. Every believer is a priest today. You may not know it. I'm a priest. I'm a Catholic priest. But I'm not a Roman Catholic priest. Because Roman means specific. Catholic means general. And I'm a Catholic priest, and you are, if you're a believer today, by the way. Now, Levi was to have no inheritance. God was their inheritance. Now, that's the position of the believer today. God promised the rest of the tribes. He'd give them land. He'd give them acreage. He'd bless them in the field. He'd bless them temporally. But now to Levi, no. He hasn't promised that. And to us today, we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. That's important to see. Now we have in verse 12, I should say, in chapter 10, "...and this is not the gospel." You and I ought to thank God for it, because if it depended on this, you and I wouldn't be blessed very much. Listen now. And now, Israel, 
What doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. And if they had kept them, they would have been blessed. When they broke them, judgment came upon them. This is not the gospel. God, for 1,500 years, demonstrated through those people to the world, to you and me today, he can't save you by law, because these people, under favorable circumstances, in a land geared to the law, were unable to keep it. And if they were unable to keep it, you and I are unable to keep it. Thank God he saves by grace today and not by law. In fact, he never saved any of them by law. It was always mercy and grace to them looking to the coming of Christ to die on the cross. Now, verse 18, he says here, "...he doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment." God loved the stranger. And he reminded these people that they were strangers in the land of Egypt. He says, "...love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, him shalt thou serve." And to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. And the Lord Jesus turned here to answer Satan, you remember. You see, the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord Jesus sure was familiar with it, as I think every Israelite was in that day. And then the last verse, verse 22, Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. The evident blessing of God was upon them. He sent them down into Egypt. He brought them out of Egypt. God was responsible, and he didn't mind taking that responsibility. Now, in chapter 11, he says, Therefore thou shalt love the Lord thy God, Keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. The response to the love of God is obedience, you see, again. Now, he talks to them about this land, because chapter 11, the promised land was not like Egypt. And he puts down the great principle of their occupancy of the land. Now, down in Egypt, it's all irrigated. But now notice what God says in verse 10. For the land whither thou goest in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt, from whence she came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot, as a garden of herbs. It is irrigation, you see. But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even to the end of the year. And it shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently to do my commandments, which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. 
Now, the reason that land's desolate today, as we'll see in Deuteronomy, is the judgment of God upon it. The minute you put water in that land, the desert blossoms as the rose. But it's water that it needs, and they're having trouble even today to get that water. God says you're depending on rain from heaven, and he had blessed them if they obeyed him. You can look at the land and see the spiritual condition of the people. Now, the land they were going to was different than Egypt in many ways. The main way was, of course, that Egypt was a land that was irrigated. I was told when I was in Egypt that they have less than one inch of rainfall a year. That's not much rainfall. When there's another place that I've been in the Hawaiian Islands, and they tell us that they have over a hundred inches of rain fall there. And so there's quite a difference, and there's quite a span there. But the land these people were going into was a land that'd be a little difficult to irrigate for several reasons. It's hilly, and they did not have the equipment for it in that day. And they would depend upon rain from heaven. Now, God did that purposely. I'm afraid that an affluent society as we live in today, where things come so easy to so many people that they assume that God hasn't anything in the world to do with it. I do not know why, but some people think if it comes easy that they do it. And if it comes hard, God must be in that. Well, God is the one that provides for our physical needs. And whether it comes easy or comes hard, he still provides it. And so here, I think he purposely put them in a land that had to depend upon him for rainfall. And it would draw the people, of course, closer to God. Now I want to drop down to verse 24. And you will have here the principle of occupancy of the land. On what basis will they occupy? And this will come before us again in the book of Joshua And there I'll emphasize it, but here let me just mention it. Verse 24, Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall your coast be. Now you notice the land that he's giving them is a land much greater than they've ever occupied. It was a land from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river Euphrates, under the uttermost sea, and that's the Mediterranean Sea, shall your coast be. So they actually went all the way from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, and they went all the way south into that desert that they had come through, the wilderness that they had come through. Now, that is a land that is approximately... 300,000 square miles. Now, they never occupied but about 30,000 of it, even at the time when the kingdom reached its zenith under David and under Solomon. And now the basis on which they will get it is this. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord, your God, shall lay the fear 
of you and the dread of you upon all the land that ye shall tread upon as he hath said unto you. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread upon will be yours. Now, they never occupied very much of it, you see. It was given to them, and it was theirs, but they never enjoyed it because they didn't walk upon it. Now, God will tell Joshua when they enter the land, it's yours, it's right here before you. But you will have to go and walk up and down on it. You will have to lay hold of it. Now, there's so many Christians today sitting on the sidelines, and they are poverty-stricken spiritually. And God makes it very clear to them. He says, "...blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies." Now, there are great many folk today that are fabulously rich spiritually. In fact, all of us that are believers. But how many of us are enjoying these spiritual blessings? How many of us have made these spiritual blessings ours today? What a difference there is in believers. And this is the difference. We don't lay hold of our possessions. Now he says here, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. Now, notice that. I set before you this day a blessing. And a blessing, if ye obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. Obedience, friends, is the very nub of the entire matter as far as they are concerned. Now, today... Obedience is something that has dropped into the background. Now, I personally will not yield to any man more than the fact that I preach the grace of God, that we're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. We grow by the grace of God. We're going to get heaven by the grace of God. And when we've been there 10 million years, it'll be because of the grace of God. But friends, may I say to you, there are great spiritual blessings today that you're going to miss if you're not obedient unto him. And we are told, if ye love me, keep my commandments. What a personal, wonderful, glorious relationship this is with God. Now he says, there'll be a blessing if you'll obey him. But notice, the other holds good too, and a curse if ye will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day, to go after other gods which ye have not known. Now, God put up before them two commandments that had to do with idolatry. And that was the grave danger of these people, and they were constantly lapsing into idolatry. Now God deals with that with them here in the 12th chapter when he says to them, Israel is to have only one place to worship in the land. Now let me read chapter 12. He says here, verse 1, These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land, which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess 
serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow their altars, break their pillars, burn their groves with fire, and ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. Now, this is important, friends, to see. The reason that these people went into Babylonian captivity was because they had gone into idolatry. And the reason that the judgments of God came upon them one after the other in the times of the judges when they ruled over them was simply because of idolatry. And you'll find it was the thing that this man Elijah, the first and greatest of the prophets, leveled his message against. Idolatry in the land. It is the thing that when you come to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the danger of idolatry. And there's no use for us to say today, well, this is no danger for us because we just happen to be folks that are enlightened and we do not fall down and worship an idol. Are you quite sure about that, friends? Anything that you put between your soul and God is your idol, and it can be most anything. For a great many people today, I know a young man. I saw him grow up in the church. Sweet, lovely Christian. I thought he was. And he got into a large corporation, and he had wonderful ability. And he began to move up in the organization. And the father that he moved up, the father, he got away from God. So that today, that job comes first. I was in a distant city holding a meeting. And he, I think for old time's sake and courtesy's sake, for the sake of his parents, invited Miss McGee and myself to dinner. And we had dinner with him. And he made it very clear to me he would not be able to come to the meetings during the week because of business. He was very busy. Well, I soon found out, and learned this larger from others, that business and advancement and position That was his idol. That was his God. You talk about worshiping. Why, he fell down before that idol every day. Not just five days a week, seven days a week. He fell down before that idol. Anything that you put between your soul and God is your idol. That was the grave danger of Israel, of course. Now, he says to them, now notice here, verse 5. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. Now, this was to be the heart of the land. And as we know, of course, from what followed, that Jerusalem became that place, that the temple was built there. That became the place... They were to worship God, and they were to go there. Now, why did not God permit it in every other place? Well, I think that it's quite obvious, because idolatry was in that land. They were commanded to destroy it, which they did not. And as a result, why these people 
were commanded to go to the one place. In other words, it unified their worship, and it brought them, I think, closer together as a people. They were one when they went to the feast in Jerusalem. And there ought to be a oneness today among believers. Today, we don't meet in one place. Why? Well, the Lord Jesus answered that. You remember, he said to the woman at the well, he said, Believe me, woman, the hour cometh and now is, when true worshipers will worship God neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. That place God had picked, and yet the hour was already there. They'll not worship God either in either place, but the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, today we don't meet in one place, but we meet around one person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way. So that is the important thing to keep in mind today. Now, it doesn't make any difference about what the name is in front of the church. might be this denomination or that denomination, or no denomination, might call itself a Bible church or a community church, won't make any difference. The important thing is, in that church, do they meet around the person of Christ? And friends, if they don't, may I say then, they've got an idol there, because they're meeting around something. And sometimes it's entertainment. Sometimes it actually is nothing in the world but to socialize. And that's the thing that draws them together. Those things are wrong. The thing that's to draw us together is the person of Christ. Oh, how important this section is. Now, he mentions here in verse 15 and 16 something about that which they can eat, not eat. Verse 15, "...notwithstanding thou mayest kill and eat flesh in all thy gates." Whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. Now, when we get over to the 14th chapter, I think it is, we'll find again the same thing we had in the 17th chapter of Leviticus, the list of animals that were clean, the list of those that were unclean. And I'll go over that again in a limited way, but I'll attempt to go over it somewhat because... I had the experience of when we went through the Gospels, when I would get to, for instance, the Gospel of Luke, I said, well, we had this parable, or we had this passage of Scripture back in Matthew, so I'll pass over it with just a few remarks. Well, I was told by people across the country in places where I held rallies, they said, look, you just got to a parable we hadn't been listening before. We were new listeners. And you said, we'll just pass over it. And that was the thing we wanted you to talk about. So I won't pass over the 14th of Deuteronomy when we get to it. But we've had the clean and unclean animals, and that's what he's talking about here. He says, "...according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee, the unclean and the clean may eat thereof as of the roebuck and as the heart." Now, because they're unclean animals... They were not to be killed off. They were to eat along with the clean animals, you see. Verse 16, "...only ye shall not eat the blood, ye shall pour it upon the earth as water." And that was to be either of clean or unclean. And when you drop down to verse 20, you'll find out again that he's talking about this. He says, "...when the Lord thy God 
shall enlarge thy border, as he hath promised thee. And thou shalt say, I will eat flesh, because thy soul longeth to eat flesh. Thou mayest eat flesh whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Now, it's understood that he's talking about clean animals. If the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name there be too far from thee, then thou shalt kill of thy herd and of thy flock, which the Lord hath given thee, as I have commanded thee, and thou shalt eat in thy gates whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Now, suppose an Israelite had for some unfortunate, maybe or untoward circumstance, been forced to go as far away as Babylon or as far away as Greece. And at that time of the year when there was one of the feasts, well, what was he to do? He couldn't get back home in time. Maybe business had called him there. What's he to do? Well, these are regulations for him. He is to offer that of a flock, and he shall offer it as a sacrifice. But he says now, verse 22, "...even as the roebuck and the heart is eaten, so thou shalt eat them. The unclean and the clean shall eat of them alike. Only be sure that thou eat not the blood, for the blood is the life, and thou mayest not eat the life with the flesh." Now, apparently, under certain circumstances, they would be permitted to eat an unclean animal. It might be they could be in a place where there wasn't anything but an unclean animal. But regardless of clean or unclean, they're never to eat the blood under any condition. The blood represents the life. And that's the reason there's such an emphasis in the Scripture on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to drop down to verse 30 and read there. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them. That is the nations that are in the land at this time and are going to be cut off, he says, "...take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God." For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they burnt in the fire to their gods. That was one of the most cruel methods of worship, and we'll find that was a common practice in that land. It's in the worship of Baal. It's in the worship of many of these pagan religions. What they would generally do would heat an idol red hot one that was probably in the shape of a Buddha sitting, you know. And they would just drop a child, a baby, in the red-hot idol. I can't think of anything more horrible than that. Now, God says he hates that. You know, a very interesting thing is, I find out that God hates a whole lot of things that I hate. And I hope that I can hate everything that he hates and love everything that he loves. That's very important also. Now, he says here, "...what things soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto to diminish from it." In other words, God says, "...if you do what these nations do, I'll treat you just exactly as I treated them." God just doesn't 
take note of one people above another. I don't know why some Christians think they can get by certain things when others cannot. Now we have in chapter 13 here, and the great theme of this chapter is warning against and the test of false prophets and false gods. This is a very remarkable chapter, and we'll be dealing with this here and also later. Now, he says, "...if there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and giveth thee a sign or wonder, and the sign of the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known." And let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of the prophet, or that dreamer of dreams. Now, friends, this is the answer to a great many people today that say, well, how do you explain, Dr. McGee, that some of these false prophets around today, they're accurate at times? And how do you explain that apparently in certain meetings, some people seem to get a healing? How do you explain that? Well, I don't explain it. To begin with, I think there probably be a natural explanation for it. But I don't need to go into that. God says that when a false prophet comes along and performs a sign and comes to pass, you are not to believe him if he denies the great truths of the Christian faith. That is the principle that is put down here. It's very important. And he says, and that prophet and that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And when these false prophets attempt to take you into some false cult, a false religion, well, notice what the penalty was then was death. They were to be stoned to death. This is something here that they should know. Now, when we get to the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy, he'll give us a test for false prophets. Israel had no problem in detecting false prophets. That is, they were given a biblical test, a God-given test, that surely would ferret them out. Now, I want to read beginning at verse 5. And that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he hath spoken to turn you away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed you out of the house of bondage, to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. Now, this is something here, friends, that today has a marvelous application for us, and it reveals the mind of God. There was a time in this nation, I can remember as a boy, that the reading of the Bible in the schoolroom was just a normal procedure. I remember it as a boy, I must confess. I don't think it was ever very meaningful to me, but that doesn't mean that it was not important to have that. I do recall it that it was the Word of God, and that was probably the only impression left upon me was, well, this is the Word of God. But today we have let the unbeliever come in. We've let those that are in cults, 
and those that actually are opposed to Christianity in the Bible. And I'm not sure today, but what they are, the majority, and they have taken over. Now, that could never have happened in Israel, because here is something that was very extreme. If there appeared in Israel one who was attempting to take God's people away from the worship of God, why, extreme surgery was used. And friends, when you got a cancer, the best thing is to cut it out. I've learned that personally, that that's the way that you must deal with it. And this may seem extreme to a few soft-hearted and soft-headed folk, but this is the way God dealt with it, because it was an awful cancer that came in. And if you want to know how bad it really was for God's people in that day, read the story of Ahab and Jezebel that plunged the nation into idolatry and brought the judgment of God upon them that eventuated in them being carried into captivity. That is the northern kingdom. Now, that's how serious it is. Now, verse 6, If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, are far off from thee, from the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth. Thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shalt thine eye pity him, Neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. Now, this you may say, well, this is so extreme. It's radical. I agree that it is. For this soft and affluent society we live in, This today sounds like a foreign language. It sounds something that is extremely, well, it just doesn't belong to the present day at all. And again, we are seeing this. Now, it was a serious matter for a man to stone his own brother to death, to be the first one to throw a stone at him when he'd gone off into this type of thing. And that seemed to be a very severe sort of thing. But it ultimately saved many lives. And again, read the story of Ahab and Jezebel. Read the time when the northern kingdom was carried away into captivity. Now, they were carried away because of idolatry. The northern kingdom went into idolatry. Now, the southern kingdom didn't observe the Sabbath day, the sabbatic years, every seventh year. But the northern kingdom went into captivity because of that. And literally, thousands of them were slain. Now, it would have been better had a few been slain than for a great multitude to be slain. Now, we are experiencing right now in this nation of ours, we've had so many soft-headed and soft-hearted judges. And They have no Christian background whatsoever. And as a result, they do not think of our laws as they were made in the context 
of that which is Christian. And that which is Christian is obedience to law, friends, and that a penalty must be exacted. And as a result, criminals have been turned loose. Now, I live in a very fair city. But in our city, well, it was some time ago that in just one night, why, seven women were attacked. A couple of them were killed. One was raped. The others were hospitalized because of the fact that they were severely injured. Now, wouldn't it have been better if one criminal had been given the very utmost in penalty and sent to prison for life with no chance of him ever being pardoned, and that would have deterred crime? Now, don't tell me it doesn't, because it does. And as a result, why, we would have saved lives and protected a great host of people. You see, we've been so short-sighted, and this seems to be extreme to us today. I've read this because I think that there's a great principle put down here that we could learn for our day. Now, verse 10, I'm going to read this because it's extreme. Thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, this is the death penalty. And we see today that we say it's uncivilized. Well, I guess that this crowd would call God uncivilized. But I wonder where they got the little civilization and the little culture that they have. It all came by way of the Word of God, friends, what this nation owes to the Word of God. And now it's getting away from it, and so we think we're becoming civilized. But it's more dangerous today on the streets of our cities than it is in a jungle trail today in Africa. And why? Well, because we have gotten away from the death penalty, and that's uncivilized. But actually today, it's safer in the jungles of another country. I was in the jungles in the mountain region of Venezuela. And friends, may I say to you, I felt safer down there at night, walking down actually a jungle road, and they said there were a few bow constrictors around, but I felt safer there than I feel on the streets at night of our great cities. And then far as locking doors were concerned at night, they just didn't seem to be doing that type of thing. And I felt like, my, maybe instead of us sending missionaries down there, maybe they ought to send some missionaries to us today. This is a great section. Seems very uninteresting. But very important is a great principle here. Now, verse 11, "...and all Israel shall hear and fear, and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you." That is, they were not to depart from the living and true God. And as long as they served him, there was blessing. When they failed to serve him, why, there came upon them the curses, the judgments came upon them, and that is their story. Now, we find here, and I'll read just a few verses now, beginning at verse 12, "...if thou shalt hear say, and 
one of thy cities, which the Lord thy God hath given thee to dwell there, saying, Certain man, the children of Belial, are gone out from among you and have withdrawn the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which ye have not known. Then shalt thou inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true, in other words, they're not to do anything rashly, a thorough investigation must be made and the truth arrived at. And behold, if it be true, and the thing's certain that such abomination is wrought among you, thou shalt surely smite the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, destroying it utterly, and all that is therein, and the cattle thereof, with the edge of the sword. And thou shalt gather all the spoil of it into the midst of the street thereof, and shall burn with fire the city, and all the spoil thereof every whit. For the Lord thy God, and it shall be an heap forever, shall not be built again. Now this again is very severe, but here is where a city, an entire city, would be destroyed. Now suppose there was somebody in that city that hadn't gone after the way. Well, the question would be, had they protested it? Or they sat lackadaisically aside? And if they had done nothing about it, they were to be judged along with the rest. You see, a great many folk think it's Christian to be silent. And there's so many Christians that won't take a stand on important issues on when actually truth is at stake. And I don't mean on this petty stuff that we have today. And as a result, why they like to think, well, and you hear the old cliché, silence is golden. Well, friends, sometimes it's yellow, not golden. And we do need to take a stand. God made it clear that if a man lived in a city, why, he might be in a minority, but he's to protest that which is wrong. Now, we come to chapter 14, and chapter 14 has to do with the diet for God's people. We've had this before, back in Leviticus, in the 17th chapter. We've already had a reference to it here in Deuteronomy. Now we have this given again. And we have here, actually, I would say a very clear-cut statement of it. And it might be that you find it a little clearer than it was in Leviticus. The reason for that would be that in this particular section here, why we have this same law that we had in Leviticus tested during the wilderness march of 40 years. Now, I'm going to read, beginning at verse 1. Ye are the children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves, nor make any baldness, between your eyes for the dead. Now, that was a heathen, pagan practice in that day. And you see the carryover of it among certain tribes today of the earth. I think that they have tribes out in Australia that are great at disfiguring their face. It's part of the worship. It's part of religion. Now, God's people were never to do that. Now, we have here the reason for the dietary laws, and he'll give them in this chapter. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, 
And the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. Now, if you have my book on Leviticus, when we were going through Leviticus, you got that book. It'll pay you to turn back there to the 17th chapter and to read about the clean and unclean animals and how this diet that God gave to his people was more than just a religious ritual, that actually there was a physical benefit by them observing it, and that it's been tested down through the centuries. Now, when the plague broke out years ago in Austria, and I have that in the book, the detailed account, that the Jewish population were not touched by the plague at all, but the rest of the people died like flies. And finally, why, of course, the anti-Semitic element, they use that as an argument. They blame the Jews for the plague. And, of course, they had nothing in the world to do with it. The thing was that they were observing the dietary law, and it is good. It has a beneficial effect. Many of the things that God had his people do not only were just religious, and here God says they are holy, and they are to be a peculiar people. And believe me, this made them peculiar when a plague breaks out and they are not touched. But the wrong interpretation, of course, was placed upon it. So there is a real benefit of this diet. And we're living in a day of diets, by the way, Now, God has given a diet, not to you or me. Whether you eat meat today or don't eat meat will make no difference. That as far as your relationship to God is concerned, the thing of it is, if you observe this, you may stay in this world a little longer, and if you don't, it may get you in his presence a little quicker, by the way. Now, he makes it clear here, certain things are included, certain things are excluded. I'm reading at verse 3 now. Thou shalt not eat any abominable thing. He's already stated to them what it is, but now he's going to put out a clear-cut statement in just a moment. These are the beasts which ye shall eat, the ox, the sheep, and the goat, the hart and the roebuck and the fallow deer and the wild goat and the pyrag and the wild ox and the chamois. Now, these are clean animals, and they were to eat them, or they could eat them. Now, how did they arrive at choosing these animals? And there were two methods. And every beast that parteth the hoof and cleaveth the cleft into two claws and cheweth the cud among the beasts that ye shall eat. Now, as we said before, and I want to say it again, that not only is there a benefit in following this, but also there's a great spiritual lesson for us today. Now, what does it mean to part the hoof? That is, that the hoof is divided and not a cloven foot. Well, that speaks of the walk of the believer. And a parted hoof or a separated hoof speaks of a separated life. Now, I know there's a lot of legalism that's brought in today about Christian conduct. And there are a great many people, they've gotten rid of the Ten Commandments, all right. That is, they say they don't live by them, but they've made about 25 more 
and they do attempt to live by them. I do not believe that that's the way God intends for us to live. But a separated life is not so much separated from as separated unto. Paul began the epistle to the Romans by saying that he was separated unto the gospel. Separated unto it. Not separated from something, but separated to something. The word cleave has two meanings. You can cleave something apart or asunder, or you can cleave it to something. And that's the same way about separation. You can be separated unto or separated from. And the important thing is that to be separated under the gospel or separated under Christ, joined to him. And when you're separated unto him, you're not going to need to worry about a lot of these things today. That's the walk. And then we have here chewing the could. What does that mean? Well, that means that he spends time in the Word of God. That's what chewing the cud is. In fact, you have that over in Psalm 1, verse 2. It speaks of the blessed man, and in his law, that is, God's law, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate. And that word meditate is the idea of chewing the cud. And he eats the Word of God and like a cow. cow has, I think, they tell me about three stomachs. She chews the grass of a morning, puts it in one, and then when it gets hot in the day, she lies down under a tree or stands under the cool shade of a tree and transfers that grass by rechewing it. And that's chewing the cud. She moves it over to another tummy. And that's the way we should do the Word of God. This has a great spiritual lesson for us today. Then he mentions those here that they're not to eat, and then he mentions the clean birds and the unclean birds. Now, a great many people make a great deal about not eating pork. They try to get back under the Mosaic law today. But what about birds? Now, I had a neighbor quite a few years ago, and he was a wonderful neighbor. And in fact, he and I played tennis together. And I asked him one day, he was trying to tell me about you ought not to eat pork. He was a doctor, by the way. And he said, Oh, how bad pork was for you. And I asked him, I said, did you ever eat an ossifrage and an osprey? He looked at me, oh, what did he say? I said, an ossifrage or an osprey? He said, I don't even know what they are. Well, I said, you sure better find out. I said, I might invite you over someday for dinner and I'd have roast ossifrage. And that would be just as bad as eating pork. Why, he said, I never knew that. And so I told him he'd better look it up. And I sent him to the 17th of Leviticus, but here it is in the 14th of Deuteronomy, verse 12. But these are they of which ye shall not eat, the eagle and the ossifrage and the osprey. Now, if I was under the Mosaic law today, I'd sure find out what that ossifrage was, friends, and that osprey. Because you don't know when you'd go have dinner with a friend and they'd turn up with having a roast ossifrage. And you'd be breaking the law. Verse 22, Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. And then he mentions in verse 26, And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen or for sheep or for wine. God, as we've said, promised to bless his people materially if they served him, and he did. 
Verse 28, At the end of three years thou shalt bring forth all the tithe of thine increase the same year, and shall lay it up within thy gates. Now, I don't have time to go into this, nor do I intend to, but if you will examine the law rather carefully, you will find out they paid actually three tithes. That is, 30% of what they made went to the Lord, not just 10%. I think a tenth went into the temple immediately. But also there was this tithe that's mentioned here at the end of three years, and the tithe of the seed. And then verse 29, "...and the Levite, because he hath no partner inheritance with thee, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow which are within thy gates shall come and shall eat and be satisfied, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hand which thou doest." God had a concern for the poor.